Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. And there's no denying we're in the depths of winter and Christmas is here. If you're catching up with this at another time of year, you might not fully appreciate it, but the stories are amazing no matter when you listen. And there are three of them on this podcast for you, all told in the black box in Belfast at our Christmas event in 2022. Nowadays, my mother is less mobile than she used to be, so she masterminds the entire event from her armchair, just like a villain in a James Bond movie. We decide to meet in Hanoi for Christmas. On Christmas Eve, we asked for directions to the cathedral for Midnight Mass, because you know our mothers were going to ask. My arm seized the opportunity and Stephen's knee. Alarmingly, he got up immediately, saying he needed some fresh air and to check on another cow. So get ready for Christmas with Edie, the Bond villain, sweated out on Christmas in Vietnam, and warm your heart with the beginnings of true love. Let's get stuck into the meat of it, and here's longtime 10 by 9 supporter, Caroline Orr. I am a huge fan of Christmas, I won't deny it. I've always loved this time of year. I love the carols, I love the twinkly lights, I love the gatherings with friends and family, and I love the way people are just that wee bit nicer to each other at this time of the year. I have some great Christmas memories too. First, there were the early ones when I'd be so excited, I was literally almost sick. I'd go to bed on Christmas Eve and shut my eyes tightly, trying to fall asleep quickly so that Santa would arrive. I felt a mixture of awe and fear at the very mention of his name. And if any child in school ever tried to say there was no such thing as Santa, I would have witnessed vehemently for his existence. Of course, there would have been a pre-Christmas visit to see a pretend Santa at the co-op. Now, for those of you who are a bit younger than me, um, that's where the university is now, but it used to be the co-op, and it was a great place to see Santa. Um, you would you get a pretty crap present, if I'm honest, uh, wrapped in, you know, the kind of cheap paper that your finger goes through when you try to open it? But you knew that was okay, because this was just a foretaste of what was to come when real Santa arrived. Christmas morning would have me wide awake ridiculously early, beyond myself with anticipation. And as I was the oldest, I was allowed to go into the living room first and see the presents first. And that living room was transformed into a grotto, a tiny tears, a pram, a barbie, later a bike, a portable record player. A Cliff Richard single. <laughs> okay. I didn't choose it. <laughs> Santa Claus, one of the few men in my life who never disappointed. <laughs> He's a tough act to follow, eh, girls? By breakfast time, I would have wired into my selection box, leaving nothing but the packaging and the spangles. You didn't eat the spangles. <laughs> See, there's a few oldies in tonight. And you definitely didn't eat the old English flavour ones. And that was nothing to do with politics. It was just that they were rotten. <laughs> the taste, they were like old lady sweets and they stuck to everything. You would find a few of them stuck to the bottom of your toy box in about April. <laughs> Poor old spangles. Nobody liked the spangles. Teenage Christmases brought other delights. There was mistletoe 
and getting to kiss boys at the school disco when the teachers weren't looking. And then there was the utter glamour of being allowed to go carol singing with Ballyselin Presbyterian Youth <laughs> Fellowship <laughs> on Christmas Eve. I had always loved seeing them arrive in our street from a was away, but I was told that I had to wait till I was a big girl before I could do that. So when I was about 13, I went along and I realized that this event was less about the carols and the proclamation of the incarnation than about hormones and flirtation. <laughs> and a big bowl of tomato soup when you finished. Christmas Day would see me watching Top of the Pops, dying to hear what the Christmas number one was, taking bets with my sister, with my nanny Bailey tucking away in the background about all that carry-on and that television. And to be fair, these were the days of Gary Glitter and Jimmy Savile. I think. <laughs> nanny Bailey had a point. She knew stuff. <laughs> of course, there was always the obligatory turkey dinner followed by vast amounts of sugar. And I mean vast. Our family loves the sugar. And I'm not just talking about Christmas pudding. There would be trifle, meringues, pavlova, Christmas cake, coffee cake, mince pies. You get the idea. There's no wonder my dad had diabetes. <laughs> I've always been amazed at the amount of sweets and chocolate my family could get through in one afternoon. But I'm not behind the door myself. There would be a roaring fire in the hearth, lots of laughter, stories of the old days, and then vast amounts of dishes to wash. As an adult, as I say, I still love Christmas, and I still actually still waking up on Christmas morning feeling a wee bit excited. But I've also learned about its stresses, the most significant of which being dealing with my mother. (laughs) I say there's a few women in here know exactly what I'm talking about. She doesn't handle Christmas well, or rather, I've never been able to handle handling her well. There are hours of searching for exactly the right gift, and then bringing it back because it was decided that it wasn't the right gift and there was something better, and then having to shop for that. There'd be many, many more hours spent hanging around town waiting for her to finish shopping. I remember clearly one year, standing opposite the city hall, waiting for what seemed like half my lifetime. And in those days, there was no fancy Christmas market or German beer tents or any of that. There was just a wee spindly tree and Jim Reeves' 1950s classic Christmas album on repeat. I realised at one point that Jim was on his second time through and there was still no sign of my ma. I now have a complete aversion to the song Silver Bells. It's Christmas time in the city. Oh, And while we're on the subject of really annoying Christmas songs, is there anything more irritating than standing in a queue in Marks and Spencer's or next, feeling all hot and bothered, knowing you've still about another five shops to go to, and then hearing, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. God help the shop assistants having to listen to that on repeat from September. I won't even go into the hell of trying to just to score an iced Madeira cake in Marks and Spencer's on Christmas Eve. That's just too painful. Nowadays, my mother is less mobile than she used to be. So she masterminds the entire event from her, her armchair, just like a villain in a James Bond movie. <laughs> Only without the Russian accent or the cat. She hates cats. I have become her lackey. I am Jaws in Live and Let Die. There are more hours of shopping and waiting in queues and cursing Sir Paul McCartney for that god-awful song. And then just when you think you've finished, she sees an ad on TV for a great new gadget from JML or a nice wee twinkly jumper on Loose Women, but she's no idea where you can buy them. And I'm dispatched on another mission. 
There's sometimes even a final trip to the petrol station on Christmas Day for one last box of chocolates. She is relentless. The Christmas she broke me was 2002. The family were all in Bangor at my wee sister's house. Well, most of us were. At the last minute, my mum claimed a bad back and bowed out. We actually opened our presents with her at the end of the phone while I did a running commentary on who was opening what and how pleased they were. We had a lovely dinner and then we settled in front of the TV with the Quality Street. Proper Quality Street, not that travesty they're selling now. The phone rang. Don't answer it, my sister said. It could be a trap. It was too late. I'd answered. It was the Bond villain. I've left some presents in your dad's car. You may take those round to your Auntie Jean's, she said. Now, I love my Auntie Jean and all her family, but it was Christmas Day. I had a cold and I was knackered. She lives in a different part of Bangor, which isn't that far away, but all I wanted to do was snooze and continue to make a dent in the quality street before everybody had eaten all the good ones and left nothing but toffee pennies. And we were going to see my Auntie Jean on Boxing Day anyway, but no, the presents had to be delivered today. It was the final straw. And I lost it. I was a true Christmas martyr. Was it not enough that I did all her shopping, wrapped all her presents, bought her cards according to her spec, which means pink or red, no glitter, a nice wee Christmas scene, definitely no animals, and happy Christmas, not merry. <laughs> Forged her signature on the cards, bought the stamps, posted the cards, bought, helped with and cleaned up after the dinner and now to go to Auntie Jean's as well. No, it just wasn't happening. I called in at Auntie Jean's around five. <laughs> she knew I would. Not much has changed since then. She still plans Christmas domination from her chair, but I now realise she's kind of earned the right. She must have done a massive amount of running around the shops at Christmas when we were small. That can't have been easy with three kids and a husband who worked really late hours. Yet those childhood Christmases were magical. Like many of our parents, she wanted us to have what she didn't, and she certainly achieved that. Yet Santa got all the credit. When you think of it, the whole Santa thing is a lovely example of selfless love, of giving and expecting nothing in return. And now it's my turn to do the rushing about. It's just the way things are. The universe demands it. So I have to bite my lip and get on with it because there will be a time when she won't be here. There won't be any running about or queuing or mother-related stress and it will feel strange and sad and hearing those songs will make me tearful. In the meantime, I will continue to join the crowds of tired and grumpy shoppers wishing I was at home in my jammies watching It's a Wonderful Life. We lost my mum in February 2020, just before the pandemic was declared. Her timing was impeccable. She'd said her goodbyes, put her affairs in order, or rather instructed me to put her affairs in order, said meaningful things to the people she loved, and passed fearlessly and peacefully from this life to the next. Christmas 2020 was not just our first without mum, but it was, of course, our first pandemic Christmas. Do you remember those? <laughs> Getting into bubbles with people or being worried that nobody would want you in their bubble? <laughs> Staying two metres apart? <laughs> and then there was the Omicron Christmas and the curfew. Do you remember the curfew? Anyway, I wasn't looking forward to it. But something changed when people started putting up their de Christmas decorations just after Halloween. We dug out my mum's old gold Christmas tree, Holly Willoughby collection. 
decorated it with ornaments that have been around for decades and let it shine in all its 70s glory in our new house. It smelled of the house I grew up in and it took me back to earlier, happier Christmases. I found myself actually wanting to go shopping. Let's face it, there wasn't much else we could do. I really wanted to be rushing around shops in search of perfect gifts. So at a time when social gatherings were really limited and every day felt the same as the day before unless it was bin day, The habits I'd learned from being my mother's Christmas slave actually brought me joy. I had a strong sense of her as I shopped, and I'd smiled to myself when I managed to find things that I knew she'd approve of. And despite the circumstances, it was a lovely Christmas, and I wish you all a lovely Christmas this year. Thanks so much, Caroline. Edie, your mum was something else altogether. Brilliant. We're always looking for new storytellers at 10 by 9 so if you'd like to tell your story, but unlike Caroline, you're a little nervous or shy, then get in touch at the 10 by 9 website. People often send in a first draft, and then we work together to make it into a gem. So, get writing. Okay, let's get on to our next story, and just to explain, Clonard is a monastery in West Belfast, which is famous for its Christmas Midnight Mass. Here's Brandon Green. Christmas was special in our house. I realize that'll be true of 99% of the audience, but in our house it was special. You see, we were clonard people, and at clonard, Christmas is really special. People who don't go to church go to clonard at Christmas. <laughs> people who don't like Christmas go to clonard at Christmas. Even Protestants go to clonard at Christmas. <laughs> My parents met and fell in love in Clonard Choir, and Christmas is when the choir were really at their best. The carol service, usually the first Sunday in December, was followed by a party in the monastery with a seemingly endless supply of cakes and chocolate and coke. For us kids, forced to sit in silence during the lengthy service, it was a chance to mess around and stuff our bakes. My parents were always less likely to chastise us, with priests and brothers drifting around, pouring sherry and handing out mince pies. My father had been in Clonard Choir since the 1940s and had sung O Holy Night every year until he was in his 80s. Even as a child, even as his child, I knew that he was something else. People clapped every time. I'd never seen people clap in church other than that scene in the Blues Brothers. What might surprise people to know is that, despite singing it annually for 50-odd years, he had to have the words of O Holy Night in front of him while singing. Once, when I was about 10, I saw him frantically searching the house for his music book. Ours was one of those houses into which important things disappeared without trace. (laughs) This was Christmas Eve, by the way. Eventually, he gave up and started looking for a blank page. No joy. He then took a cornflakes box out of the press, folded it inside out, and sat down to write the lyrics in his slow, careful hand. Such was the careful uh, recycling habits of an interwar baby. I watched them closely that year at Midnight Mass, worried that the box would unfold and people would see my dad performing using a recycled cereal box for sheet music. And I realized two things. Firstly, He was gripping the folds so tightly there was no chance of them coming apart. And secondly, he was singing with his eyes closed. 
Later at home, when everyone else had gone to bed, I asked him why he needed the words if he sang with his eyes closed. Always have a backup plan, son. Stage fright is no joke. Here's looking at you, Dad. <laughs> One of my most memorable years was when the rector opened the Mass by specifically and individually welcoming all the types of people who might otherwise worry they're not welcome in church. The sinners, the lapsed, the doubters and divorced, the gays. He was saying to all these people and more, there is room at the inn. It was the Christmas message, yet it sounded radical. So you might wonder why, in spite of all that, when I had to stay in Dublin to work over Christmas in my final year at college, I didn't mind at all. In fact, I was kind of happy. You see, I'd just fallen in love with a Dublin girl called Rose. Is there a better time to fall in love than at Christmas? It's as if the whole world reflects what's going on inside your heart. Spare a thought for my poor friends, though. None of them were falling in love, and most of whom were stressing about finals, who had to put up with me gazing at fairy lights and singing Christmas carols. <laughs> it must have been like hanging out with the elf. <laughs> Rose and I spent those first weeks drinking hot chocolate, watching Polar Express at the Stalorgan Cinema, watching Casablanca on my uncomfortable sofa, and walking hand in hand along Grafton Street, gazing at fairy lights and singing Christmas carols. I was so happy I even volunteered to cook Christmas lunch for the other resident assistants who, like me, were working in UCD halls over the holidays. I'd never cooked Christmas dinner before. Never, in fact, roasted any type of meat. <laughs> but I was walking in the air and felt I could do anything. UCD were kind enough to supply us with plenty of grog and a turkey and ham. No giblets. What they didn't give us was anything large enough to cook it all at once. On Christmas Eve, I tried to boil the ham, and it was literally twice the size of our biggest pot. So I cooked the bottom half, <laughs> took it out, flipped it, and cooked the top, and lived to tell the tale. On Christmas afternoon, with my roommate Cavi and four other RAs waiting, I went to put the ham in the oven with the turkey to finish it off. Well, there was barely enough room for the turkey itself, so no, no, no chance of squeezing the ham in. We could do with a second oven, said Cavi. Light bulb. The Canadians across the hall had gone home from the holidays, but as RAs, we had master keys, so I let myself into their apartment and baked the ham in their oven. Sorry, lads. A year later, Rose and I went to London to visit my brother. Our first trip abroad. Having taken the first Earth Fungus flight that morning and dropped off our bags at my brother's work in Covent Garden, we were starving. All I wanted was that classic London delicacy, the Cornish pasty. Rose had never had one, and my vivid description did not whet her appetite. We found a pasty shop first, my successful argument being that I could eat it on the way to somewhere serving somewhere, something more agreeable to her. I took that first bite. You know, the one that's mostly crust, the one that just lets the steam escape. When I saw her watching me with one eyebrow, all right, she said, let me try it. And foolishly, I handed it over. I should never have let it go, because that was the last I saw of the Cornish pasty. 
I thought, this relationship will never last. <laughs> Two years later, I'm living in Seoul, and Rose is traveling the world. We're doing the long distance thing, and it sucks. We decide to meet in Hanoi for Christmas. On Christmas Eve, we asked for directions to the cathedral for midnight mass, because you know our mothers were going to ask. <laughs> Just follow the crowds, we were told, and boy, they weren't wrong. Six blocks out, and the streets were heaving. It was like Mardi Gras, except at Christmas. We couldn't get anywhere near the church and had to watch mass on a big screen. And I thought Clonard was popular. On Christmas Day, despite it being 30 degrees in the shade and a thick, wet heat, we really wanted a traditional dinner. Unsurprisingly, it wasn't that easy to find. All the western pubs were booked out. Then we found an almost empty Irish pub serving turkey and bottomless glasses of tiger beer. We ate there, the only foreigners in the joint, and it was surreal. We later found out the Irish husband and Vietnamese wife who ran it were going through an acrimonious divorce. Foreigners couldn't own businesses in Nam, so he'd been forced out, and all the expats were boycotting it. Ho, 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 more turkey for us. <laughs> Afterwards, Rose and I went for an ice cream, walking single file down an unpaved street, teeming with a million mopeds. I heard Rose scream. I turned and realized we'd got separated, and she was much further back than I thought. She'd screamed because she was being mugged. I watched in helpless horror as a woman tried to steal my digital camera, which was strung over Rose's shoulder. The camera, a Christmas present from Rose the year I'd left Ireland, had hundreds of photos on it. I started to try to make my way back toward them when I saw the most amazing maneuver. Rose transferred her ice cream from her strong hand to her weak, <laughs> thus allowing herself to deliver a haymaker of a punch to the would-be thief who hastily staggered off. She'd saved my camera, but more impressively, she'd saved the ice cream. <laughs> and I thought, this relationship will probably be okay. <laughs> Countless Cornish pasties, four kids, and 15 Christmases later, I was right. Nolik Honadich. Thanks so much, Brandon. So glad it all ended happily. I hope you'll make it back to the 10 by 9 mic before too long. Okay, on to our third and final story on this podcast. I put this story out as a bonus pod on Christmas Day last year, but I make no apology for featuring it here again. It's just so good. Scrooge would not have needed three ghosts if he had heard this heart warmer. From Lorna Dunn. The proud pipe organ of St Giles Cathedral sang out its rich reverberating finale of Hark the Herald. The headmaster concluded proceedings by reading The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Doors opened, organ music spilled out onto the well-worn cobbles of the Royal Mile and boys in pink and toffee-striped blazers mingled. Those uniforms are preposterous, I thought, as I made my dogged exit from the Fetty's school carol service. 
I wasn't quite sure how I'd survived my first harrowing term as a teacher in Scotland's most expensive boarding school, but I had. Now I was free for three glorious weeks, skipping past the besuited city workers of Edinburgh and down the steep mound towards Princes Street, I whispered to myself, by tomorrow I'll be miles from Fetty's. <laughs> it was my first time in Ireland. My sister Elaine had invited me over, having married a county down man. She and John lived in Belgium, but were visiting John's family farm for Christmas. She wanted some female company in the male-dominated agricultural environment. At the tiny airport, we gave each other a long, tight hug. During the journey to the farm, driving home for Christmas, crooned from the radio, but became bizarrely incongruous when I was suddenly confronted by a black masked gunman staring at me from a wall on the Ormo Road. <laughs> Gradually, the city receded and we drove through a succession of villages with parallel lines of low stone houses. Beyond the villages, the streetlights disappeared altogether as we advanced down country roads. At the farm, darkness seemed to envelop me, but looking upwards, there was a limitless arc of starlight shining with greater intensity than anything I had seen in the city. The night air was redolent of animals and I could hear the mellifluous sound of a river flowing and the gentle lowing and shifting of cattle. A shaft of orange light moved across the yard as John's mother, dressed in an apron, opened the back door. Hello, Lorna. You're very welcome, she said, smiling warmly and looking at me directly. The kitchen had a high pine roof and the glorious aroma of beef juices. Elaine handed me a glass of red wine, which was almost knocked out of my hands as two boys in miniature work overalls exploded through the door, screaming, Aunt Lorna! At dinner time, John and his brother Stephen came in from the milking. The December wind etched into their faces. The aroma of cattle travelled with them. The pair were built in a similar way, lean and strong-limbed from years of physical work. The veins on their forearms were raised like electric wires beneath masking tape. My nephews took one of Stephen's hand each and pleaded, Come and sit with us! He grinned down at the diminutive would-be farmers and allowed himself to be led to the table putting an arm around each one as he sat down. A Labrador followed, settling down with a contented snuffle before placing her bristly chin on Stephen's feet. Although I came from another world, as the conversation flowed, I heard my own language being spoken at this table. All term, I'd spoken with the wrong accent, and the wrong views. 
Here, I was surprised to feel strangely at ease in the home of strangers. I began to believe I might, after all, still be sane. The next evening, Christmas Eve, Stephen announced that he needed to go out and check an expectant cow. Have you ever seen a calf born, Elaine asked. Why don't you go out and watch? I was issued with a clean pair of overalls and we stepped out into the yard, the starlight providing just enough light by which to see the ancient stone sheds. The beast was lying down and producing deep primordial groans. Her black eyes bulged in terror as she turned her head hopefully towards us. You're all right now, Stephen whispered soothingly, stroking her neck gently. Can you see the wee hooves starting to show, he asked. Two tiny white hooves were beginning to push their way into the world. He sat on the trough watching. His shoulders pulled and strained as he assisted the mother capably. Now a sleek head became visible. Then, in a final torrent, a whole slimy, steaming calf was thrust onto fresh straw. Come on, Suki, he cajoled, rubbing the calf with straw. The newly created creature made uncoordinated attempts to get to its feet. Stephen sighed in relief, before staring once again at the mother. Oh, look, there are two of them. Is that unusual, I asked. About one in fifty, he replied. If we get twin heifers, that's even rarer. Maybe you're good luck. He smiled at me sideways, then continued working until, as hoped, twin heifers were feeding from their mother. The two of us stood staring. The silence broken only by contented sucking sounds. A quiet sense of awe and stillness came over me, out there in the freezing night air, sharing this numinous moment of new birth. Back at the house, everyone was abed. The embers of the logs were glowing vermilion. Stephen threw on some more wood and popped the cork of some black bush. Nightcap to celebrate, he proffered. The two of us sat beside the stove, sitting and listening to the whistling fire. As I looked up, I found him glancing at me. Instantly, I looked away. Those eyes. Cobalt. As the week went on, time slowed down. The days became weirdly elongated. The evenings beside the fire stretched out longer and later. So one morning, Elaine and I went walking by Strangford Loch. In the distance, the morns were visible, Sleeve Donard dominating. She put her arm through mine and squeezed it hard, and then took a breath as if to speak, but hesitated. Um, is there... Is there something going on with you and my brother-in-law, or am I imagining it? I stared at my boots. There wasn't a lot of point in pretending. We'd always been able to read each other. Well, nothing's happened. I mean, 
We like each other's company. Uh-huh. You like each other's company? She grinned. I thought you might like each other if you actually met. What do you mean? You thought. I erupted. Did you plan for this to happen? I wasn't sure if I was furious with her or laughing. Well, you were so miserable. Stephen's been getting over a broken relationship. When I saw him again, I began to wonder if I'd been manipulated by my well-meaning sister. However, when he suggested that we go and pick up Chinese for everyone on the final night, I knew what the answer was. The car smelled of hay. As we drove into Downpatrick, I could sense him struggling with his thoughts. I, I, I was thinking today how uh, much I'll miss John and Elaine when they go, he said quietly. And then I thought, he paused, I, I'll miss you too. It was a kind of declaration I realised from this gently spoken, reticent man. I wanted to respond, but I wasn't sure how, so I just said, well, you'll have to come and visit me in Edinburgh. Yes, I'd love that, he answered. Once again, everyone else turned in before we did. The black bush was nearly empty. The ancient walnut clock on the wall ticked insistently. I'd be gone tomorrow. Without warning, and without my consent, my arm seized the opportunity and Stephen's knee. <laughs> Alarmingly, he got up immediately, saying he needed some fresh air and to check on another cow. <laughs> Had I messed things up again? Once more, we walked out into the moonlight. This mother-to-be wasn't ready, he decided, sitting down on a nearby straw bale. I joined him. The cows... Soft breathing was the only sound. We watched as the beast's breath rose into the cold night air, suspended. I stole a glance. Yes, he felt it too. My face moved closer to his, and reader, I kissed him. <laughs> there were no half-measured and he was shocked. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> 29 years later, we still live on that farm. This time of year will always mean freezing starry nights, new life, whiskey, nights by the fire, and love. Lorna, thank you so much. I love that story. It sent us all home from the black box full of joy and warmth. And that's it for this Christmas podcast. Check out all the 2024 dates on our website and mark them in your diaries. Be sure to keep tabs with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for any updates. Our Christmas 10 by 9 is coming up on December 20th at the black box. 
you'll get to hear one of those stories on a special bonus pod on Christmas Day, so keep an eye and ear out for that. The rest will feature on next year's Christmas podcast. God spares us. Thanks to everyone who has helped 10 by 9 thrive this past year, especially the fabulous Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory and Chris O'Donoghue. There really would be no 10 by 9 without them. Thanks of course to the beautiful people of the Black Box and all the venues we've visited this year, as well as the amazing, supportive and generous audiences we've encountered. Thanks to all our brilliant storytellers in 2023, you have given us such wonderful glimpses into your lives and we are truly grateful. But the biggest thanks this week goes to Caroline Orr, Brendan Green and Lorna Dunn. I'm Paul Doran and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, have a wonderful Christmas. Christmas.